My guest is Simon MacDonald. Simon MacDonald was the head of the British Foreign Office and Diplomatic Service until the autumn of 2020. He now sits in the House of Lords as a crossbencher and is Master of Christ College, Cambridge. He's also the author of a new book, Beyond Britannia, Reshaping UK Foreign Policy. Welcome to the podcast, Simon. Hello, Paul. Right. Well, we're going to talk very much about the future, the position of the UK going forward uh, in terms of reshaping its foreign policy, which is very much, of course, the theme of your book. Before we do that, I would like to start, as your book itself does start, with uh, the day after the referendum result, the 24th of June 2016. You talk vividly how you went into the, the, the Foreign Office that morning and didn't know quite what to expect in terms of the atmosphere. Could you very briefly recount the atmosphere on the morning of the 24th of June 2016? The 24th of June 2016 was the single most dramatic day in my 38-year career at the Foreign Office. Almost every moment is etched in my memory, and almost every moment was dramatic because this was the most dramatic reorientation in the UK's post-Second World War foreign policy orientation. And people working for the Foreign Office, I think, understood that immediately and were wondering what on earth was going to happen next. Uh, The result was clear. Uh, The destination was more or less clear. But how we were going to get there was completely unclear. And so grounding people in the new political reality, giving them a sense of how we were going to go about the task uh, was my task, was the board's task on that dramatic day. Right. Well, you've been sort of, I wouldn't exactly say taken to task, but it's been highlighted recently, this so-called revelation, which wasn't so much a revelation after all, that you did actually reveal to your colleagues how you, you yourself voted and surprise surprise you voted remain um, it is not quite the scoop maybe that the BBC wanted to portray it as because you did tell uh, the UK in a changing Europe project uh, a couple of years ago that very same thing but can you explain to me why you felt it so important to tell your colleagues how you yourself had voted it was a dramatic and quite spontaneous response to the drama of the day and feeling um, what most of my colleagues were were experiencing. Uh, of course, uh, many people in the Foreign Office voted uh, leave, and I knew that, but I had a very clear sense, more than a sense, knowledge that the majority, I would say the overwhelming majority, had voted remain. And I wanted to connect with them on a personal level. I felt that was very important as the leader of a team. It's also relevant, Paul, that um, although there were 400 people in the room and more than 2,000 lines open around the world, this was still a private meeting. Uh, And so I felt I was talking in-house. And the fact, as you acknowledge, that no one knew about this until I myself outed myself to UK in a changing Europe some years later, right. and then I, it, I, it, it didn't really impact on the public at all. So um, the discretion uh, uh, was respected uh, by, uh, by colleagues, and people are getting very het up a long time after the event. And I, I really believe the upset is misplaced uh, because our obligation as public servants 
is to be impartial, to act and in an impartial way. But this does not mean that we don't have personal views. Of course, we have personal views. Uh, what it requires is that we are not directed by those views when they are at variance with government policy. And that was the message I wanted to convey to colleagues. And I think I successfully conveyed to colleagues. Well, obviously, to execute Brexit, uh, the government created this new department, the Department of Exiting the European Union. Department of International Trade obviously is very important in, in that respect also. Did you at any point feel concerned as head of the Foreign Office that you were slightly uh, no longer the centre of gravity and you were being displaced by these other departments? Yes. Uh, they appeared as uh, Theresa May became Prime Minister. There was no notice of their creation before the public announcement. Uh, and of course, both of them affected core foreign office business. Uh, both of them uh, affected the remit of the new foreign secretary, uh, Boris Johnson. Uh, and both of them, to different degrees, caused uh, turbulence uh, in Whitehall over the following years. The easier it was um, international trade, because uh, trade had been dealt with in many different ways over, over decades. Uh, and uh, this was in some ways back to the future. A lot of people remembered uh, DTI. So the recreation of a department focused on trade was in the end fine. But DEXEU was uh, an, an immediate visceral response to the challenge and cut across a lot of core foreign office business. So uh, the new foreign secretary felt that immediately. Uh, and I, we saw that play out. Uh, we saw that there were unresolved uh, problems about remit uh, between uh, the FCO and DEXEU throughout DEXEU's existence. You say earlier on in the book also, uh, and I quote, on 24th of June 2016, did the UK irreversibly damage its ability to act on the, on the world stage, end of quote. Uh, if I were to ask you the question seven years ago, seven and a half years ago, what would you reply to your own question and how would you reply now? Seven and a half years ago, the point is it was a question. Right. Uh, this was such a dramatic development. I think people in the UK and around the world looking at the UK were asking, what does this mean fundamentally? I put it in the book. I make no apology for asking myself that question because I think it was one of the questions that had to be asked at that dramatic moment. Uh, these years later, I think clearly the UK does play a big role internationally, still outside the European Union. It has not affected many of our relations, but it has affected some very important relations, and that is still working its way through. Uh, but one of the big arguments I make in the book is that uh, the United Kingdom as a country is too distracted by its history, is, is not reconciled to the fact that uh, Brexit aside, we are a different country from 100 years ago, even 50 years ago, and our um, unique qualities are not anymore in hard power. Uh, our unique uh, qualities are more soft power, and I think they can make a decisive difference on the international stage. But the fact we're not focused is sort of detracting uh, from our potential impact.
you say quite starkly also, and it struck me when I read it, um, the world is not demanding a British role. Uh, the world does not need a British initiative, anything at all anymore. Uh, but you're very keen also, I if I'm again correct in saying, in not to subscribe to a very well-established narrative about the decline of, of the UK, especially on the international stage. How do you make the case then? Does, you ask the question, does the UK still seek a role in the world? Is the world better off if the UK plays an active role? How do you answer those questions then? I answer it by arguing uh, that we've changed rather than declined. Uh, and the change is about uh, uh, towards soft power capabilities. I think where we are very, very strong is in uh, the our judiciary. The world comes to the United Kingdom, specifically to London, to arbitrate. Uh, we're very strong in tertiary education. I'm sitting in Christ College, Cambridge, yeah. Oxford, Imperial, LSE. These are among the best universities anywhere in the world, and they attract uh, global talent, and they are dealing, the, the scholars here are dealing with the issues that the world most needs to grapple with, uh, whether it's technology or climate change or deforestation or plastic in the oceans, all the solutions for this nexus of issues, I think, will come out of universities uh, like Cambridge. Um, and I think uh, our cultural and sporting offer is world beating. Um, uh, our media, uh, I think, is world leading and our old institutions are still, uh, I think, amongst the most effective and therefore effective models for other countries. Do these different elements of soft power, the, the magnificent seven, as you call them, uh, are they at all affected by a pretty widespread view uh, outside the UK, never mind in the UK, that um, maybe, surprise, surprise, coinciding with the Brexit results, but the, the reputation of the country has also suffered. It's not like we have to re recalibrate wh where we stand in the world and, and, and strategize accordingly, but also some would say the UK is no longer what it, what it used to be, and its, and its image is pretty dire in some quarters. That is undoubtedly true, but I don't think it is universal. Uh, and I think it is is very interesting that we have this conversation. Uh, the United Kingdom manages to downplay its effectiveness as much as boost it. Uh, so the, 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 the debate about decline is one that we have all the time. Um, and my point in the book is that the, the substance for that worry is uh, the fact that we don't have the armed forces, we don't have the global military clout that we used to do. And that is just a fact. Now, if that's the only way you judge a country's effectiveness, that's a very important fact. Uh, but my argument is in the middle of the 21st century, there are other things that count. Uh, and we are very strong in these new things that count. Right. So if we've established, maybe to the two of us, at least you and I agree that the, Britain, the UK does have a role in the world still, despite an uh, after Brexit, um, you therefore clearly have to maximise what you have. Uh, but you make two points which I'm going to challenge you on, which seems like you're actually giving away some of the, the, the family silver. You have these two ideas. You, Number one, idea number one, I propose that France, Russia and the UK stop being permanent members of the UN Security Council. Uh, instead, the EU via the European External Action Service uh, would become a permanent member. Russia and the UK would be alternate members, each 
serving two years on, two years off. Idea one. Idea two is the UK should put its nuclear deterrent on the negotiating table. Well, there are two pretty big things that the UK still just about has, despite Brexit, and you're kind of wanting to auction them off. And I wouldn't say auction them <laughs> off. I would say it's part of recognising the change we're talking about. Um, the international architecture, specifically of the United Nations, was agreed at the end of the Second World War. Uh, the United Kingdom was clearly one of the victorious powers uh, that uh, had consequences for the content of uh, the new structures. We are now nearly 80 years later, and the United Kingdom is, uh, is not one of uh, the countries that can demand by fact and performance permanent representation at the Security Council, I would argue. Now, I argue that because I uh, think the worst response uh, to new developments is adding stuff. Um, and of course, the easiest thing with the Security Council is just to add new permanent members, right. add new elected members. Uh, but my observation um, in meetings, not just on the international stage, but supremely on the international stage, is that you can have uh, too many people there. Uh, and 15 is, I think, at the limit of what is effective. And 15 is the membership right now. So if it, the membership is to change in order to reflect new circumstances and the outcome is to remain effective, it has to be done underneath that ceiling of 15. So what I propose, I agree, is radical, but it keeps us in there. It also keeps the UK and Russia thinking about each other, and I hope in, in, in a less adversarial way, because we were sort of tag team um, at this uh, key uh, forum. Because it's out there, of course, it's going to be rejected by nearly everybody, and I recognise that, but I want to get people to think. Um, what we have right now is not uh, fit for purpose. It doesn't reflect the world of 2023, and we need a really effective, ultimate international uh, organisation. The only one on offer is the United Nations, and if it doesn't reform, then its ability to perform necessary tasks will get less and less, and that will be a bad thing. On your second point, the nuclear deterrent, I think, again, that belongs to uh, a different era for us. My view, which I argue in the book, is the way we have the nuclear deterrent means that we will never use it. Uh, and if you have something that you will never use and people work out that you will never use it, I question its deterrent uh, capability. Another fact is it is immensely, but immensely expensive. Uh, so I would much rather use the tens of billions that we will spend on our nuclear deterrent in the 10 or 20 years ahead on some other aspect of defense, which actually bites in the real world. Uh, I also think that by having a nuclear deterrent, we're, we're kind of, it's part of misleading ourselves. Because uh, you know, as you point out, it's not as independent as people would like us also, to think. It's, you know, <laughs> that is just, we, we've, over decades, we've got used to the idea uh, that um, everything important comes from the United States, but still the United States 
allows the United Kingdom to, to have an independent deterrent. Well, I, I think that is deception, self-deception. Anything which relies wholly on the goodwill of someone else can't ever be described as independent. You remind us throughout the book that the UK is a medium-sized country, and if it wants to have any effectiveness on the international stage, it has to work through, through partners. Uh, I'll be pressing you in a moment about EU relations writ large, but as a way to that, on the bilateral front, you talk some length about the, the value of the relationship with France. Do you see on the back of the, the, the recently revived uh, Anglo-French summit that took place in a few months ago, a, a rekindling of some kind of more constructive collaboration, cooperation between the two countries that has been absent for, for quite a few years now? I do, uh, and I think it's very important. But it's it will always be a complicated relationship. I mean, I think history um, uh, is relevant. We've had a difficult relationship with France for a millennium. That <laughs> counts. Uh, but we can absolutely have a more constructive relationship than we've had since uh, 2016. And the elements are moving into place, uh, not only the summit, but also the King's State visit to France. I think these were very uh, important signals of a, uh, a common willingness to work more closely together. Uh, but you remember I was British ambassador in Germany. Uh, I don't think anything can be done with France that isn't also being done <laughs> with Germany. Um, Germany is actually the most important country economically in Europe uh, and increasingly politically, even though it is more reluctant than France to shout about that fact. Uh, so within Europe, absolutely, France and Germany. And then alongside those two relationships, something different and something necessary uh, because of Brexit is a stronger relationship with Brussels, particularly the European External Action Service. Right. Before we come on to the EU more broadly, a quick comment, please, from you on United Relations with the United States. As you point out, and it, this predates Brexit by several decades, uh, the US has seen the UK as useful because they could see that we were relatively influential inside the European in Union, or at least it was perceived as such. Uh, now that we have left, how would you describe the how Washington thinks of London based on your experience? I don't think Brexit has helped. I don't think Brexit has improved their view of uh, the UK's clout. But that view, which I'm giving as a, the, the general US view, doesn't apply to all US players. So one particular US player that, who absolutely thinks that Britain is better off outside the EU is Donald Trump. And Donald Trump may be president of the United States a second time. So I make a general point that it's easy to dispute in detail. Uh, but when I look at the U.S. system and what key um, departments in Washington want, we are offering somewhat less. So the offer on security and defense and intelligence is therefore more important. So the work we do together through NATO is more important. And you also say, which is very good to hear, that the the uh, the UK needs a much closer relationship with the European Union. How would you see that developing, either through informal uh, talks, more systematic, more structured cooperation? Uh, I think both sides are now realising, certainly after the Windsor Framework Agreement of last February, 
that the the door is much more open now to that kind of collaboration. But how do you think, in terms of in the foreign security field in particular, how can that kind of collaboration take place in the future? I absolutely think it needs to be uh, closer. I also think it should not cut across NATO. It has to be complementary. Uh, with what we're doing in NATO. Most EU member states are members of NATO, so this should be uh, achievable. Um, but uh, the nagging doubt, of course, is uh, American long-term commitment to Europe. So uh, Donald Trump is, is keen on Brexit, but he's not at all keen on NATO. Every element is complicated. I think that we start with informal contacts and we end up with new structures. Right. Uh, so I think that this is a, a journey with uh, uh, many stages, uh, but the common starting point is that what we have now is, is not enough, uh, that we are uh, the single biggest country on the European uh, continent that is not a part of the EU. Um, I'm putting Turkey and Russia to one side for this point. <laughs> and we are a very big player in security and uh, intelligence and defense. Indeed, you could argue bigger than any single member of the existing uh, EU. Uh, given that we share the same challenges, it feels to me obvious and necessary that the EU and UK work more closely in these areas. And in terms of new structures, this invention, as some might call it, of President Macron, of European political community, which had its inaugural meeting, just over a year ago, and, uh, and its most recent one about a few weeks ago in Granada. And of course, as you know, Beth and I do, Simon, the UK will be hosting the next meeting of this EPC. Uh, what, what, what is your take on the EPC? Is it something worth supporting or will it fizzle out when Macron, for example, leaves the Elysee? Uh, that is always a danger. Um, uh, there are many uh, French initiatives that do fizzle out. The Union of the Mediterranean, I think, is still there, uh, but not really very active or effective. Um, so uh, th that's always a danger with new international initiatives, especially when they're associated with a particular person. But the the rationale for this is a strong one and is, uh, clearly appeals to the UK. That's why we are interested in hosting uh, the next uh, meeting. Uh, but it needs to acquire a bit of an agenda, something that it is doing that no one else can do for it really to become rooted. Uh, and I would look for a, an agenda before I would look for a secretariat. <laughs> OK, well, the final question, Simon, I'd like to circle back to soft power because it, it suffuses the whole of your book, uh, sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly. Uh, and I'm going to press you a bit because a lot of, people who are sort of it's just about fans of the UK, but not 100%, kind of groan when Brits start talking about this wonderful thing called soft power that they have to deploy that no other country in the world seems to have, including the royal family on occasions. Uh, I press you because, again, before Brexit, and you were overseeing the Foreign Office for quite some time, you've had to suffer various cutbacks from budget from Chancellor's Exchequer in terms of the capacity, especially the Foreign Office, the 
the, the, the world uh, interface from as far as the UK government is concerned. Soft power sounds, as you call it, the power of persuasion and attraction. Could you be in the remaining minute or so of our chat, sort of make the case for UK soft power in a way that nobody else would be able to criticise it ever again? I, I, of course, Paul, <laughs> but I have to say, first of all, I, I never say nor imply that only the UK has soft power. Right. Okay. I think this is a, a power that is alongside hard power across the world. I right. think we're particularly developed. I think we have a lot to offer. But one key point is it's not to the exclusion of anybody else. Um, again, the exercise of soft power is most effective when it is done in partnership. Nearly everything, if not absolutely everything we are trying to do, we need partners. And partners are more willing if you're taking them seriously, if you're not uh, talking down to them or you're not taking them for granted. So our soft power needs to be quite humble um, uh, as well as quite uh, self-aware. But what we have... I think across all the, the Magnificent Seven is a combination which is unusual and maybe even unique. Uh, and I think that combination has uh, a lot to offer as we tackle a new agenda in international relations. Uh, the old agenda has roared back and our new foreign secretary is going to spend all of his time dealing with traditional problems in Ukraine, Russia, and in the Middle East. But the new agenda of the planet of technology is forcing itself forward. It doesn't get enough attention. But as we pay more attention to this new agenda, that offering from the United Kingdom uh, is both relevant and helpful. Thank you. Well, we have to leave it there. Simon McDonald, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Paul.